Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, taking an in-depth look at the book of 1 Peter. The first letter of Peter was written to Christ followers who were scattered throughout the known world. They were learning to live out their faith in a whole new world. Peter doesn't want them to be surprised by suffering and persecution. He wants them to see those things as an opportunity to live out their faith. As we study this book together, we'll learn that no matter what happens, we have a God who cares for us, and we have the hope that we will one day be with Him. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Joseph Merrick was born in Leicester, England on August 5th, 1862. It's difficult to properly diagnose someone who predates modern medicine, but few people have suffered from more physical deformities. All 10 of his fingers were useless stubs. His misshapen head was the circumference of a man's waist. His distorted mouth made his speech almost unintelligible. His right arm was twice the size of his left arm, and his deformed legs could barely support his weight. In 19th century England, a perverse yet popular form of entertainment was the the human novelty exhibition. Joseph Merrick was the headliner in one of those exhibits. Posters pronounced him half man, half elephant. People paid their shillings to see the human freak show. They shrieked in horror at the sight of him. One day, a surgeon named Frederick Trevers wandered into the human circus. His assessment of Joseph Merrick was similar to everyone else's. He wrote, he was the most disgusting specimen of humanity that I have ever seen. But Dr. Trevers didn't shriek or shrink away. Merrick's physical appearance piqued his scientific curiosity and also his empathy. The good doctor tried talking to Merrick, but he was unable to decipher his speech. He did, however, hand him a business card. And it was that business card that London police found on Merrick when they discovered him huddled in the dark corner of a train station looking like a wounded animal. The police called Dr. Trevers and Dr. Trevers took Merrick to the London hospital where he would spend the remainder of his life. Shortly after Merrick's arrival, Dr. Trevor Trevers ordered a food, tray of food for him, but he failed to warn the orderly who delivered it. When she saw Merrick, she dropped the tray and ran out of the room screaming. Over time, however, the hospital staff became accustomed to his peculiar appearance. And one day, in a carefully orchestrated experiment, Dr. Trevers arranged to have a woman enter Merrick's room, smile at him, wish him good morning, and shake his hand. Dr. Trevers recorded what he witnessed. The effect upon poor Merrick was quite more than I had expected. As he let go of her hand, he bent his head on his knees and and sobbed until I thought he would never cease. He told me afterwards that this was the first woman who had ever smiled at him. And this first woman was the first one in all of his life who had ever shaken hands with him. That smile proved to be a turning point. Dr. Trevers wrote, he began to change little by little from a hunted thing into a man. Dr. Trevers listened to Merrick long enough and hard enough to finally decipher his garbled speech. 
He found Merrick to be both intelligent and articulate. Merrick was a voracious reader of scripture. He had a holy curiosity about everything that encompassed all of life. Dr. Trevors then began to smuggle him, to, smuggle him into the private boxes of London theaters to watch plays and operas. He gave him books to read. He took him to the countryside where Merrick loved listening to songbirds, chasing rabbits, and picking wildflowers. More than once, Merrick remarked, I am happy every hour of the day. After Merrick's death at the age of 27, Dr. Trevors eulogized the infamous elephant man this way. His troubles had ennobled him. He showed himself to be a gentle, affectionate, and lovable creature without a grievance and without an unkind word for anyone. I have never, ever heard him complain. Think about that. He was never heard to complain. How was that even possible when someone has experienced that kind of trauma? He said he was happy every hour of the day. How does someone who has been mistreated for so many years profess happiness every hour of the day? I believe it's because Joseph Merrick's outlook on life was the result of his faith in Christ and his familiarity with God's word. When you read about Merrick's life, you discover that he was a devout Christian. And I believe he understood that his identity, his identity was not in what he looked like on the outside. His identity wasn't in how people saw him and what they said about him. But his identity was in who God says he was. So how do you see yourself? You know, I think all of us on some level have struggled with our self-image and our identity at some time, though I suspect none of us has ever been mistreated like Joseph Merrick. But we all could probably say that somewhere along the way, someone has said something about us or put a label on us that has caused us to struggle with how we see ourselves. And that's why Joseph Merrick's life moves us. And that's why other stories resonate with us. Think about some of those other stories, whether they're real life or fiction. Maybe the story of Cinderella comes to mind. The mistreated stepsister who, against all odds, becomes the one chosen to be the princess by the prince. Or maybe it's the story of Maximus, the victorious Roman general whose family was murdered and who himself was sold into slavery by a jealous emperor, only to return as a gladiator and defeat the emperor in the movie by the same name, Gladiator. You know, those stories and the stories of Joseph Merrick's life resonate with us because we see these people overcome the labels put on them by others. We see them identified by others in one way, only to show their true identity in the end. It's an identity that's good and positive and that we can identify with and it's one that we would want for ourselves. In the second chapter of the book of 1 Peter, God reminds us of our true identity. It's not how we see ourselves or how others label us, but it's how God sees us, and it's what God calls us. So let's read that. Beginning in verse 9, it says this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Look, I want all of us to know this truth that God has chosen us because he sees us as someone that he values. God sees us as royalty. God sees us as holy, part of a holy people. He sees us as special, part of his people. As followers of Christ, this is our identity. So let's walk through that new identity that we have, and let's, let's look at each one of those descriptors that we see there. The first one, you are a chosen people. You know, to be called a chosen people is a powerful identity statement. To know you are chosen by God is a huge statement of affirmation of who you are to God. Peter gives us more insight into that identity when we read verse 10, where it says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is recalling what God said to all of the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. God spoke and said, you are not my people and I am not your God. This was devastating news, but eventually God restores Israel to himself. And so what Peter is doing is connecting those Christians in first century Asia Minor with the promises of God through their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's connecting us also to the same promises. Think back to that first century. These were predominantly Gentile Christians. That means they, they really didn't have this identity of being chosen by God. And yet now they're being told they're chosen by God. Peter is showing them that through Jesus, God has brought them to himself to be a people of God, part of a holy body of Christ. God demonstrated this by giving them mercy through the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as that was spoken to the first century Christians, it's spoken to us in the 21st century. You are chosen by God. God calls you his child, his son, his daughter, his people. But Peter goes on and he says this about our identities. He says that you are a royal priest. Now, you probably have never thought about that, but, but again, Peter is using an Old Testament reference referring to when God said to Israel these words in the book of Exodus. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The priests were royal in the sense that they served God, the eternal king. In Israel, only certain people would be chosen to serve as priests. But when Jesus came... He introduced this new idea of the priesthood of all believers. And we understand in this doctrine that all of us as followers of Jesus Christ are part of the priesthood of all believers. We're all called to serve him. So that means as a follower of Jesus, we serve God in the priestly functions of worshiping him with our lives, with our words, with, with how we live every day. And this carries with it this idea that Jesus is our King of Kings. And so as part of the priesthood of all believers who serve that King, we're part of the royal priesthood. We're considered royal because of whom we worship, the King of Kings. And finally, Peter says this. He says, you are a holy nation, 
Again, he's taking his cue from what God said to the people in Israel. He said, you're a holy nation. And so the primary focus of a holy nation is that distinctiveness from the world. Holiness carries moral implications as well. So like Israel, the church is supposed to be different from the world for the sake of the world, because we are meant to declare the praises of God to the entire world. This differentness means that we don't embrace the culture of the world, but rather we embrace the culture of the kingdom of God. We don't look to secular leaders or politicians to determine how we live. We look to Jesus. This is our new identity. This is how God sees us. And as you can tell, there is both an individual aspect to this identity as well as a corporate aspect to this identity. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, it's not just us alone. It's us being part of something bigger than ourselves, us being part of the body of Christ. Let me illustrate this. In the book of 2 Corinthians, it tells us this. It says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That's the individual aspect of it. But a few verses later, it says this, that we are all ambassadors for Christ. In other words, that individually and collectively, we are are representatives for Jesus in the world, in the culture of the world. So as a follower of Jesus, you're part of something bigger than yourself. That thing is the body of Christ, the church, and that is extremely important to God. But here's the thing about our identity. You know, if, if I told you that you are all of these things how would that change your life? Because we all have to ask ourselves that. If we are chosen by God, if we're a, a holy priesthood, if we're part of something bigger than just ourselves, what are the implications for how we live? Jesus calls us to a new way of life. So let's look at that. So let me ask you this question. What does a mechanic do? A mechanic fixes things. What does a teacher do? A teacher teaches students. So then what does a follower of Christ do? He or she follows Jesus. Now, when you read through the book of 1 Peter, what you'll see in the verses before and after the, the scriptures that we talked about that said we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, they begin to tell us how we live out our identity. They help us understand both the individual implications of this identity as well as the corporate implications, and they're all intertwined. So let's look at how we're supposed to live. First, we're supposed to understand that we were chosen to be foreigners and exiles. Now, what am I saying? Well, let's go back to the scriptures. In verses 11 and 12, it says this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Think about it this way. You and I have an earthly citizenship in a country to which we were born in or to which we became citizens of. It could be in the United States. It could be in England or South Africa. It could be in any country on this earth. But when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we became citizens of the kingdom of God, which is in heaven now, but one day will be established on the earth. 
Citizenship in the kingdom of God is far more important than any earthly citizenship than you and I could ever have. Jesus himself said this. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. The apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, our citizenship is in heaven. So what does this mean for us? It means on earth, we're foreigners and exiles. And God chose us to be so because earth is not our home. The kingdom of God is. As members of God's kingdom and thus followers of Jesus, our allegiance is to God and following his son, Jesus Christ. Now, as I say that, God's word is very clear. That while we live on this earth, that we are supposed to follow and obey the authorities that God has placed over us in the countries where we reside. We live in a way that honors our God and makes unbelievers glorify God in heaven. And as we go on in the scripture, we, we discover this, that this new way of living is not only are we called a royal priesthood, but we're called to serve as these priests. In verses 4 and 5, it says this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? I appreciate the words of Pastor Juan San Sanchez. He points out that just as God called Israel as a royal priesthood to be a mediator of God's blessings to the surrounding nations, so too the church, the body of Christ, is called to mediate God's blessings to the world in which we live in. So by offering spiritual sacrifices of our whole lives live for God's glory, we show the world the glory of God, and the exuberant joy of living our lives under his rule. We're supposed to be followers of him. So how, do we, how we live is supposed to honor God in the words that we say and the deeds that we do. This, therefore, becomes our acceptable form of worship as part of the priesthood of all believers. And then finally... This new way of living is that we are commanded to be holy. Now, earlier on in the first chapter of 1 Peter, we see that God calls us to be holy like God is holy. And then we see that this idea is continued on in chapter 2 that he says we're called to be a holy nation. Now, keep in mind that this is more than just being a spiritual nation uh, than, it's more than being just a physical nation on earth. It's being a spiritual nation. It's about living for God, because we recognize that every physical nation on this earth is far from holy. To be holy means to be set apart, to be different. So how do we do that? Well, Peter gives us some clear guidance throughout his letter on what holy living looks like. In, at the end of chapter one, he says this, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. He's telling us to be holy by purifying ourselves, by obeying the truth about Jesus and his teaching. And one of the main teachings of Jesus was that we're supposed to love one another. And he even quantifies 
and qualifies that. He says we're supposed to love one another deeply. He tells us we're supposed to love God with all that we are and love our neighbors as we love ourselves. But he goes on in chapter 2, he gives us some more instruction. He says this, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's saying, get rid of the bad behavior that makes you unholy and crave the spiritual milk that he calls God's word, that we're supposed to take it in and let it grow our faith and help us become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Let me draw this to a close. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Hearing the way that God sees us is powerful. It's the identity that he has for us. But God is gentle. God's not going to force that identity on any of us. He lets us accept it. He lets us recognize that's who we are, not who the world says that we are. But if we accept it, it also means that we accept what our identity means for our lives for how we live each and every day. We will embrace that identity and what it calls us to do. I I look at the life of Joseph Merrick. He was born with all of those deformities which caused people to reject him and to ridicule him, but he was also a follower of Jesus and a student of God's word. And he knew his identity was in Christ and that identity shaped his response to the world and to others. So as sons and daughters of God who are identified in the way that God sees us, we have to ask ourselves, how will we live our lives? Will we live it honoring God and proclaiming his glory? Or will we fall back into the trap of what the world says about us and others say about us? I want to close with a prayer that we would all lean into living that life that God has called us to live and and to live it out. But I also want to give you an opportunity. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, you know, all of this may seem a little foreign to you, this whole idea of having an identity from God. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to tell Jesus you believe in him and want to follow him and understand how God sees you. So I'm going to begin that prayer time with that opportunity for you to pray a prayer. And I'll just give it to you a phrase at a time. And then I'll lead us in a prayer for all of us as we seek to follow Jesus. So please bow your heads. Father, as we come in here and as we pray, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and that you would hear our prayers. So if there's anyone who wants to put their trust in Jesus and profess your faith in him, just put these phrases in your own words and pray them silently wherever you are. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins and I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And now I commit myself to follow him all the days of my life. And now, Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that we would understand that you have called us to you, that we are a holy nation, a royal people, a chosen people. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds to help us understand that's how you see us, that we would walk in that identity and that we would live out of that identity and proclaim to the world the glories of who you are 
and how you see each and every one of us. Lord, help us reject those labels that we get from the world and let us walk in the truth of who you see us as. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.